Let us pray. And our hearts to your word, in the name of your Son and in the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Refining fire, go through my heart, illuminate my soul, scatter thy life through every part, and sanctify the whole. That powerful, powerful message of God's refining fire, the spirit of God given at Pentecost. Well, as we heard earlier on, the day of Pentecost was not invented by the Christians. It was a Jewish festival, and it took place 50 days after the Passover, another Jewish festival. And of course, in Christian life, it takes place 50 days after Easter Sunday. In church tradition, Easter Sunday has been often the focus on the newly baptized and those new to faith. Whereas Pentecost is a festival that takes us further in our journey of discipleship, traditionally being a focus for confirmations, testimony, and a commissioning of those in particular ministries within the life of the church. Today is a day when we might look again at where our resurrection faith has taken us. We're reminded of the commissioning power of God's Holy Spirit, that calls all Christians to a ministry of proclamation and prophecy. Like those early disciples, we are given a voice to tell the story of Christ's resurrection and to share the reality of God's inclusive love. Well, what was going on for the disciples on that day of Pentecost about 2,000 years ago? Pentecost was and still is a major festival for the Jewish people. And it remembers the day that the Torah, the law, was given to the people of Israel 50 days after they had escaped from Pharaoh and Egypt. So it is a day to be given gifts from God, very appropriate as we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Jerusalem as a city would have been absolutely buzzing bigger crowds than were here for the state opening of Parliament a few days ago. Pilgrims from all over the world, it would be like the Olympics. People from all over the world would attend the festival. The streets and the public squares would be absolutely full of the rowdy chaos of human living. Somewhere in that chaos, in that disorder, in that joyful celebration and that trade and that toing and froing from the temple, Christ's followers were gathered in one place. Some of them had, over the last 50 days, witnessed the living Christ, risen from the dead. Others would have heard the story, told again and again by their friends. Some of them had witnessed Christ's ascension into glory, and both marveled at the sight and yet felt that pang of loss and the fresh anguish of bereavement and confusion. They must have puzzled, what had Jesus meant when he said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Most of them had never traveled more than 
a couple of dozen miles from home. And they were to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. So on a day when the city was alive with a festival spirit, yet the danger from the religious and political elite against the Christians was still very real. It's not surprising that this group of Jesus' friends would get together to share their hopes and fears, to admit to their confusions and possibly argue about what it all meant. Perhaps there was safety in numbers, but also the solidarity of those who together had been through traumatic and confusing events. I wonder if there might have been heated discussions about what to do next. If they were going to be open about seeing Jesus risen and ascended, what would the consequences be? Should they get their story straight, agree a message, a common narrative? And would that be a cautious story, only told to a few safe people? After all, they were all in danger if they openly declared their association with Jesus. How could they make sense of all that had happened in the garden, on the shore, on the seashore, on the road to Emmaus, and on the Mount of Olives? Into this story of human confusion, without warning, suddenly, it says in the Bible, suddenly came a sound from heaven like a rush of a violent wind. Don't worry, you don't have to do the sound effects at this point. A sound from heaven like the rush of a violent wind. Divided tongues as of fire rested on each of them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Unbidden, unlooked for, God intervened. It was as though the Spirit could not be contained a moment longer, pouring into the world in a new and dramatic way, a challenging way, burning with love and passion, bringing both order and chaos, alive with new possibilities and freedom. In that moment, any thoughts of safety, of getting their story straight, of being on message, were burnt up in the searing heat of God's life-giving spirit. No safe story, no safe narrative, no human agenda, no political manifesto or religious doctrine could contain the love of God as revealed in Jesus Christ. The quiet, whispered concerns of a group of haunted men and women were transformed into the coherent, inclusive message of God's love for all people. The international crowd heard the shouting and singing of this ragtaggle band of believers, each in their own language. I wonder how many languages we'd need to be spoken in this room today for each to hear their own language. I don't know if there's anyone from Phrygia or Pamphylia, as we heard in the reading, but we are God's international people. And the crowd from all around the known world could hear this ruckus, this rumpus, this rowdy group speaking in their own tongues. They were drawn to the spectacle, to the intrigue of the occasion. Peter, who, as we know, was never one to hold back, 
and was now empowered by the Holy Spirit, began to preach, extempore preaching in the best of the tradition. He told the story of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And he placed that story centrally in the history and the prophetic tradition of the people of Israel. He urged the crowd to the salvation offered in Christ. And as we heard, on that day, about 3,000 were added to the number of believers. A group of people who we imagine were not particularly articulate were transformed and released. Their religion was not to be a whispered rumor to be shared with a select few. It was to become a living faith, a movement which would flow to the very ends of the earth and would change history. Time after time, when the story of God's love for all people seems threatened with silence, the Holy Spirit gives a voice to the voiceless and new life bursts again from the tomb. This week, many of us have remembered the 70th anniversary of D-Day. The Second World War was a time when life was trampled and hope seemed small and fragile. Both world wars and conflicts since have led to a deep questioning of the possibility of a God of love in a world of suffering and chaos. Those questions are real and valid, and we still ask them today. And they're questions that we, as people of faith, have to face up to. And it's not good enough to offer simplistic answers. Yet even in the midst of such conflicts, God's Spirit has continued to touch lives and offer transformation. I'm going to read a diary extract of a young Dutch-Jewish woman who um, worked with the Jewish Council in Amsterdam and later volunteered to go into the Western Book concentration camp in order to help others. Her name was Etty Hillesum, and Etty later died in the camp, aged 29. In the midst of all this trauma and chaos, she describes an experience which to me sounds as though she encountered God's spirit. This is what she writes. Tuesday morning, half past nine. Something has happened to me. And I don't know if it's just a passing mood or something crucial. It's as if I'd been pulled back abruptly to my roots and had become a little more self-reliant and independent. Last night, cycling through cold, dark Lyrostrata, if only I could repeat everything I babbled out, it went something like this. God, take me by your hand. I shall follow you dutifully and not resist too much. I shall evade none of the tempests life has in store for me. I shall try to face it all as best I can. I delight in warmth and security, but I shall not rebel if I have to suffer cold, should you so decree. I shall follow wherever your hand leads me and shall try not to be afraid. I shall try to spread some of my warmth of my genuine love for others wherever we go. But we shouldn't boast of our love for others. 
We cannot be sure it really exists. I don't want to be anything special. I only want to be true to that in me which seeks to fulfill its promise. I sometimes imagine that I long for the seclusion of a nunnery, but I know that I must seek you among the people out in the world. Somehow in a story of great bleakness and darkness, Etty encountered a sudden experience of God and turned herself from looking inwards to looking outwards and in the end gave her life because she said she would rather she died than someone else's life be lost. There's something in Etty's words of that same spirit-prompted courage that drove the disciples from seclusion into the city square at Pentecost. She writes of babbling in prayer aloud and in response to an abrupt act of God in her life, which leads to her declaration of obedience and to knowing that she must seek God among people out in the world. We are called, brothers and sisters, to that same outward-looking, generous obedience that enabled the followers of Jesus to risk everything in order to tell the story of God's love. The other story dominating the news over the last few weeks has been that of elections. Sorry, this is at the point you switch off, isn't it? But no, don't. It's all about politicians getting their story straight, working out the message that they think will best articulate their vision of how the country and even Europe should be run. And woe betide the member of the party or the candidate who's not on message. Cynicism seems to be the order of the day when we consider our politicians. Yet I'm not convinced that's entirely fair Having met a number of MPs, without doubt, some do seem only able to sell a particular view of the world based on their party manifesto. The conversations with those have left me cold or frustrated, and in one case, blazingly angry. However, the majority of politicians I've had the privilege to meet have been genuine, hard-working men and women who want to make a difference locally and nationally. They will support their party because they believe in the broad direction of policies, but they also burn with a passion for justice and the well-being of communities. And from time to time, that passion takes them off message. Those individuals are on the whole more attractive because there's an integrity and a connectedness between their words and beliefs. So where does that leave us? Are we on message or on fire? We've heard this morning of people who, despite danger and the possibility of dire consequences, have been prompted by God's Spirit to a courageous proclamation and a world-changing love. How do we live as disciples in the light of Pentecost? Often, as we grow up in the church or join a church in later life, we learn a particular set of behavior and a particular way of describing our faith. 
I grew up um, from about the age of 11, I attended my local Methodist church, Bruff Methodist Church, on the banks of the River, River Humber near Hull. And we had a way of doing things. People on the whole arrived on time for church. In fact, quite a lot of us would arrive early and sit in silent prayer before the service. And I thought that's what everybody did in every church. I was quite shocked when I found out there were other ways of arriving at church, perhaps not quite so punctually and not quite so quietly. In the evening service, we always sang the Lord's Prayer. And if I hear that setting of the Lord's Prayer now, I'm instantly at home. I feel like I've gone back in time to my church where we did things properly. You know, we learn a way of being church and being disciples. And we become comfortable, perhaps, and safe in our discipleship because we know the rules. We understand what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. And this, on the whole, may not be a bad thing. It leads to order in church. It leads to respect for others. It helps us to understand the ground upon which our faith is built. There is a problem, though. If we become too comfortable in our patterns of worship and discipleship, then we can exclude others. We can lose the vibrant sense of God's spirit alive within the life of the church. And it was risk that brought the followers of Jesus together on the day of Pentecost. They were hiding, looking for comfort and security in each other's company. And yet God loved them too much to leave them in that comfortable place. They were filled with God's spirit. And that led to an outrageous, dangerous way of life that turned them into outcasts, prisoners, victims of persecution. It also led to a worldwide family of faith that still today is prompted by the Spirit to proclamation and love in action. My worry is that often in the church, we're like the disciples before the Spirit was poured out. We look for comfort and security. We look to be with those who are like ourselves. We look for comfort and security. We look to be with those who we understand. And we can become a closed shop, a private club with rules of our own. We can turn inward and love each other, but forget about the world that God loves. We end up on message. When for God's sake and the world's, we need to forget our own security and be on fire. We become the opposite of Pentecost. We expect people to conform, to understand our language, both spoken and the language of our actions. If the Spirit's arrival at Pentecost was a dance, dance of passionate love to which all are invited, we sometimes act more like wallflowers at a dance, sitting on the sidelines, tutting and moaning that we don't like the music. What do you need to risk in order to join in the dance? What do I need to set aside and let go of to live a more dangerous, outrageous place of loving that God is calling me to be and to do? What do you need to decide is less important than the proclamation of God's word in love and action? What rules and limits have we as a church and as individual disciples placed on the spirit of God? 
Because you know, brothers and sisters, the Spirit will not be confined by our way of being church, will not be daunted by our fear. The Spirit is still moving and dancing within the world today and still inviting us to join in. If we live in fear, in a restricted form of discipleship that is lost in rules or is daunted by the world beyond these walls, then the Spirit will break out anyway in other places will pour out upon men and women, will cause them to prophesy. Old and young will see visions and dream dreams. And we may find that we are left behind, huddled together in safety against a world gone mad. But where is God? God is there in the world, calling us to join in, to speak out, to let go. Where is our hope in this? I believe God continues to to pour the Holy Spirit into our lives, into our church, and into the world today. As Peter said in his sermon, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We know this, yet we do not always live as those who are confident with this truth. So let us pray that the Holy Spirit will refresh us and renew us today and give us courage to live as Christ's people in the world. For his sake, amen. And we stand to sing the hymn, How small a spark has lit a living fire. <laughs>